Welcome to Go Behind the Ballot, a podcast where two Texas moms go on an educational quest to demystify Texas politics. Join me, Nicole Abshire, and my co-host, Claire Campos O'Neill, as we deep dive into the most burning issues, hear stories from candidates, and offer hope in these challenging political times. Let's saddle up and go behind the ballot. Hey everyone, Claire and Nicole here. This is our mini episode where we are following up to our conversation that we had with Laura Subrin Yeager. As you might recall, Laura is a super education advocate. She has three organizations that she works with Just Fund It, TAMSA, which stands for Texans Advocating for Meaningful Student Assessments, and Texas Educators Vote. So after our conversation, a lot of the thoughts that I had and conversations Nicole and I have had offline have been about just what is the purpose of public education? And this is, I think, related to our conversation with Laura, but just the education series in general. And I feel like our idea about public education has changed over the years from that of a public good to more of a commodity and a consumer good. So in the context of those thoughts, uh, Nicole and I read two articles to kind of ground our thinking in this discussion. We read an article from the Washington Post titled Privatization of Public Education Gaining Ground, Report Says, by Valerie Strauss. And then we also read an article by Nicole Hannah-Jones from the New York Times Magazine titled Have We Lost Sight of the Promise of Public Schools? So I thought this would be a good place for us to pick up the conversation and some of the thoughts that we had with Laura. So Nicole, what, what kind of things have you been thinking about since our conversation with Laura? Well, quite a few things. Before I jump into those, I want to point something out, though, that the article from the Washington Post was from April of 2022, um, obviously still very relevant. And the Nicole Hannah-Jones New York Times Magazine article was from 2017, but is incredibly, feels very current and relevant. Um, So I just want to say that that kind of surprised me when I took note as I was reading the Nicole Hannah-Jones article that it was from five years ago and yet still feels very current and contemporary. Mm -hmm. Um, But yes, a lot of thoughts. As you know, when I jumped on this morning when we were going to get started, I was feeling a little blue, honestly, Um, because as I said to you, I felt like um, sad, I guess, uh, that this is a problem that we haven't solved. It feels like, and I think I even said it to you as it feels like the same monster, but just in a different costume. And it I just made me feel really depressed. But mm-hmm. you had a very different take, <laughs> which I think is really great and why I'm so glad that this is a partnership. So maybe you yeah. want to say how you feel about it. Yeah. For myself, I think my experience was, <laughs> it's funny, you know, I took my had to take philosophy in college. And the only thing I really remember from my philosophy class was nothing new is under the sun. And I find comfort in that. Like, ah, yes, I think a lot of times we think this is so hard now. It's never been this difficult. But then the thing I love about um, Nicole Hannah-Jones is she's a historian. She really grounds it in that because we've never dealt with some of these big challenging issues, we still carry these problems with us. So in a way, I 
felt some comfort knowing that this isn't a new problem. It's, it's like you said, it's just a monster that's sort of shifted form. And what we really need to do is get to the root of the thing before we can move forward. But it's hard. And, you know, as you and I were talking about these articles, specifically the author, Nicole Hannah-Jones, for those of y'all who don't know, she's the one who's done the incredible work around the 1619 Project, trying to help uh, reframe our history and and share it from a perspective of what Black Americans went through, which we miss a lot of the times in our history books and in our national collective understanding of how we got to where we are. She's She does amazing work, but she... Um, she oh, wait, brings, and can we pause that for yes. people who maybe haven't been exposed to the, that project in particular? It is in an, a magazine form from the New York Times. Uh, and I think, I don't know if they've reprinted, but I know that at one point they had you know, run out, I guess, of, of uh, the printed version. So I actually had to borrow from a friend. But there is also a podcast that um, is incredible and really, for me, kind of animated it all, made it very uh, compelling. Well, just as compelling, maybe I should say, than the the magazine form. So you can find the podcast and perhaps you can st- find the printed version now. I'm not sure of that, but you can definitely find the podcast. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's a, I mean, the word that's coming to mind is beautiful. What what happened is not beautiful, but the way she tells a story is so compelling and well-written and, and illuminating. Like I was telling Nicole, I feel like as I, as I'm an adult, I get very frustrated that I feel as though I didn't learn things at, for what they really were. And now that I'm learning them, I'm glad I and reframing history, but it's frustrating because it's like, why didn't I learn this right the first time when I was a child? Anyway, all that to say, Nicole Hannah-Jones has been shining more light on the real truth of what's happened in America. 1619 comes from the year that slaves were brought to the United States. And I, well, it wasn't the United States at the time, right? Brought to uh, America. And a few years before that was when the first Europeans landed in America. So from the beginning, right, we've had this we've had slavery, we've had a a terrible system where we treated humans like property. But the thing I appreciate about her is that right now, specifically in Texas, and even nationally, there's a lot of resistance to reckoning with that past history. And, you know, we're hearing more about critical race theory, which isn't taught in schools, because that's something that we learned about in call it at the university level. But there's there's so much backlash to just being honest about what's happening in our in our country. And it's again connects back to education, to the education system. Well and it's fascinating too that the argument to me this is fascinating that the argument against what is just broadly labeled as critical race theory, but you know, if you do any little bit of research, that is, that is a, an overgeneralization. Um, but that people are so honest, to me, this is just blows my mind, are so honest about why they don't want that taught in schools. They don't want to be uncomfortable. I just find that fascinating that that feels like a strong enough reason to not have to actually learn real history. Like, really? That's the argument? You just don't want to be uncomfortable? I mean, it, it just boggles, boggles my mind. Mm-hmm. Um, and here I'll bring up, and maybe you've seen this clip, and maybe this has circulated widely, but I appreciated, um, I hope I say his first name correctly, Ibrahim X. Kendi, 
you know, the author of um, the anti-racism book. Um, now all, of course, thoughts are escaping me. But when he was on Stephen Colbert recently, and he was addressing the argument against critical race theory and saying, but what if, right? What if in schools we taught white children to identify with abolitionists and we put them in that position instead? Like, why is the default to think that it's going to make kids uncomfortable because they're going to feel like they're enslavers? Like, why in the world would that be the path that we would choose? Um, so anyway. Yes. It actually makes me think a little bit about Okay, well, well, let's get a little bit into the article. We're going to go backwards. But I'll get into the article, and I think Nicole Hannah-Jones talks about this. She also – there's a podcast that we can link to that I found uh, back in 2017 where she is describing the purpose of public education and where we are now, where we've been historically. Uh, But her and the interviewer talk a lot about the invisible machinery And I was like, I love that phrase because I feel like in our podcast, that's what we're trying to illuminate is this invisible machinery so that we can really understand why our society operates the way that it operates. Um, But she talks about how a lot of these white parents benefit from this system and this advantage that their children have. And you benefit, but that doesn't mean that you are, that doesn't mean like, and because you benefit, you're a racist. But I think to acknowledge the system and the invisible machinery and to try to dismantle it, you have to stop and say, wait, but then I'll lose my advantage. And that's where people have so much resistance to that change, to that discomfort, to having to play on a different field. And it's like, but if it makes all of us better, shouldn't we do that? Uh, But man, it is hard to push people into a different into a different mindset is what I'm learning. True. And I think you're acknowledging another really important part of the article, which is the idea of a common good, right, versus an individual advantage and how, how that has morphed over the years, right? I mean, I don't know about your grandparents, but my grandfather and my grandmother were big fans of FDR right, believed in the programs that he enacted with the New Deal, right? And they were definitely, um, God, fan is the only word that's coming to mind. I don't like (laughs) overusing that word, but they definitely talked a lot about how that changed people's lives and how they believed in those public programs. And what Nicole Hannah-Jones's article does such a great job of is showing how much buy-in there was at the time, the things that the New Deal brought into the U.S., and then what happened post the civil rights movement, right, was that then when that common good that those programs, um, you know, brought about, when that common good needed to include people of color, that suddenly then, whoa, we're not as big of fans as the common good anymore. Yes. Yeah. She, she talks in the article about the new deal and FDR and how, okay, here's my history. Like, did I forget this or what? But he was elected to four terms as president. He was that popular that people 
were really on board for these public programs. I mean, no surprise. Who doesn't like things like um, social security? Social security, yeah, and unemployment insurance and uh, providing public housing. I mean, even now, think about our housing shortage and how expensive housing is. Well, a big part of that is because we started pulling back on investing in public housing and it's shrunk in our inventory. So we're having to experience this nationwide. I mean, these are programs that benefited so many people, maybe not someone directly, but indirectly, because if they have housing, they're not competing with you for the limited um, private, whatever, private pool of housing versus public. (laughs) Um, But yes, I'm glad you brought up FDR. And she really does hammer on this idea of public good, communal good. She even says uh, the word derives from the Latin word uh, publicus meaning of the people. And she says, this concept that the government belongs to the people and the government should provide for the good of people was foundational to the world's nascent democracies. And I think this so ties into our public education series because a lot of our guests have talked about this push to privatize public education. And I think a lot of us agree one of the last (laughs) beacons of a common good that we seem to believe in is public education. But as that's getting knocked down by others, we're going to also knock down our democracy, also knock down this communal pro- good and promise that that uh, this is for all of us. Mm-hmm. And that's my fear. I think Laura Yeager would agree and some of the other folks we've talked to. Yes. Yeah, there was another quote um, from the Nicole Hannah-Jones article that um, the existence of public things to meet each other, to fight about, to pay for together, to enjoy, to complain about, this is absolutely indispensable to democratic life. And that was a quote from Bonnie Honig, who's a professor of political science and modern culture and media at Brown University. And um, that just, that struck a chord for me, right? Um, Yeah, this idea that there are things that, having in common, even if we're arguing about them, is really, really important. Mm-hmm. And. Yeah, the, another part, she has so many great lines in this article, mm-hmm. but she says, uh, even when they fail, the guiding values of public institutions, of the public good, are equal, or, sorry, are equality and justice. The guiding value of the free market is profit. So she talks a lot lot about this contrast between the public good, how that's so separate from the private sector, which is about profit. And as we're seeing with public education, when you try to make that murky and blend the two, they can't do that because they are just in opposition to one another. One is about educating our – well, initially, public education was about citizenry and making good citizens and uh, making sure that our students could participate in the democratic process. But then when you're trying to privatize education, you are – that's not the mindset. All of a sudden, it is maximizing your profits. So this Which tension- means students become commodities, right? It is about yes. recruiting your commodity. <laughs> it's about that. And it's also a shift from the communal to the individual. And I think she's highlighting – we have to have spaces that are communal and stay communal, stay public goods, and then we have our private spaces. And the more that we shift towards privatization, privatization being the answer for everything, the more we lose democracy and that um, sense of we're in this all together. 
It's, and that's it what scares me. <laughs> further exacerbates, right, that the haves and the have nots, because who is able to take advantage when we talk about, you know, individual, I'm going to use air quotes, like liberties and freedoms, who is able to take advantage of those systems, for lack of a better word, but people who are already advantaged and privileged, right? And so without these, the the common good that everybody has an opportunity to be a part of, we just further create a divide, right? We continue to create an underclass and an upper class, and there's there's no middle ground. And that is really dangerous. History for sure shows us that when we don't have a middle class, we are on a road to violent revolution. Yes. Like, let's okay. just be real. Yes. Okay. Another, I was trying to find this other quote she has, which ties into what you're saying, Nicole. She said, democracy works only if those who have money or power opt into those public. Okay, sorry. Let me start this over. Democracy works only if those who have the money or the power to opt out of public things choose instead to opt in for the public good. And wow. I mean, she recognizes that it's the powerful and the wealthy who have to walk alongside the rest of us for this to work. And I think about how our um, wealth gap is just opening up more and more as the days go on. And it's so much harder for those who are low socioeconomic in that in that grouping to get out of that. And what's been the solution for a long, long time? Education, public education, go to school, educate yourself, go to higher education get a good job, get out. But if we're, if we're just going to create a system where at the bottom, at the base level, you can't even <laughs> get a good opportunity to learn, then it's like game over for you. And she recognizes that the wealthy, once again, hold the cards. Yes. Yes. It's not a trend I'm, <laughs> I'm enjoying watching. <laughs> it's rough. Um, which is why I'm glad we're doing this podcast and, and connecting with these public education advocates who are doing the work. And it's so comforting knowing that we're not alone and that they're doing it. People before them have been doing this, uh, that there is that momentum, at least on the other side that, that we haven't given up and said, it's just too hard. So we're going to let the markets do as they do. I feel like a good amount of people are at least trying to hold it back from just going every from the dam breaking. Yeah. Um, yeah. I agree well, with that. I do agree with that. Yeah. I think let's move a little bit into the Washington Post article. Um, as we mentioned, the title is Privatization of Public Education Gaining Ground, report says. Uh, so, so this article points out to how during the pandemic, many states have pushed forward voucher programs, uh, increase the number of charter schools, and this group that they reference, um, the Network for Public Education, has given a rating to states on how pro-public education they are. Um, and I think when we say public education, we mean like uh, local ISDs, like yeah. accountability. It yeah. is important to specify <laughs> because the language, as we discussed, is is confusing. Right? Yes. Um, 
And the the first part of the article that uh, really jumped out to me in in a scary way, but it is what it is, uh, is it says that choice advocates such as former Education Secretary Betsy DeVos and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis have called for a new definition of public education, one that says that any school getting public dollars should be considered a public school, even if the public has no say in how it operates. I was like, (laughs) what? This is bonkers. 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 What do you mean that's not public education that it talk about a multi-tier system right with the complete disadvantage going to local isd schools right they're held Mm -hmm. to these unbelievable standards of what they have to provide who they're accountable to all of that the standards are incredibly high and they're they're not getting any more and sometimes less than other schools, charter schools, private schools, in the case of what Ron DeSantis and Betsy DeVos are talking about. And they don't have to be accountable in any way. Not any way. That is crazy talk. It's that should crazy. make anybody's alarm bells go off. I agree. And I, and I think that most Americans would say, what? Like, we don't like that system. If we're going to be paying our hard-earned money to the government, it should be traceable. It should be – we should have some transparency around it. We should know where it's being spent because only then can we know if we're getting what we paid for, if we're getting good value for our dollars. And they're they're just like, no, that's – we're not interested in that. I at least appreciate sort of the honesty. Exactly. (laughs) Please say the quiet part out loud. Please do. Because, yes, then we know exactly what we're dealing with. And it doesn't feel as crazy making, right? It's like, oh, okay, that that's what you mean. And you're saying it. I do have to give a little credit there. I do appreciate that. Mm-hmm. In the article, they also referenced the report from the want to get this right, yeah, Network for Public right. Education. Uh, the organization's report said, uh, conserving public schools and local <laughs> control is no longer a part of a conservative platform. Destroying locally controlled public schools via privatized choice is. I pulled out that quote too, yeah. Claire. That one jumped out at me. Uh, yeah, I pulled that same quote. It's like it it was more almost like they moved from sort of this passive kind of feeling about public education to a very active march towards destruction with what they want to replace. Mm-hmm. Um and again, hey, let's let's make the quiet part be loud. So it is it is good to know what the agenda is. Um but wow, yeah. Frightening. Frightening. Right. The thing that I I try to find the light is when we were talking about the article from the Texas Tribune about how rural conservatives are the ones saying, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Are we sure we want to like go full voucher mode, full privatization mode? At least in Texas, it feels like we do still have some conservatives who see the value in public education, see the importance of having local ISDs want to maintain that institution because it, again, benefits their communities. Those are, this is how we have to build the coalition. You know, we no one group can do it by themselves. And thank 
God, they are on board and see the benefit of this and aren't for destroying the thing that makes their town so wonderful. Yes. Yes. And again, right, it has multiple functions. A gathering place, a place where children are educated, a place where people are employed, right? It it has multiple benefits for those small communities and for every community, really. But it is especially obvious in, in smaller towns. Um, and then did you get to see the the map of where they rate all the states? Did you see Texas's rating? Oh, where was Texas? D plus. D plus. We weren't enough. <laughs> we were not enough. <laughs> but we were a D plus. Um, but, uh, you know, there's nothing surprising about that, especially with the conversations that, that we've had. I honestly <laughs> thought, I thought we would be enough. So I, there was a little, little comfort. Well, I, I think, I don't know if Laura brought this up, someone in our podcast did, that it is the rural conservatives who are allies in this fight and saying, our schools are our heartbeat. We are not so quick to throw them to the wolves. And again, I'm very grateful that they are honest and that I would assume that they're very in tune with their constituents' wants and needs, and they're responding so and saying, we're going to be very uh, slow to let privatization come in because we're not dumb. Like we know, we know what's going to happen. Speaking of a little bit later on in the article, it says um, talking about states and states that have charter schools. Uh, it says forty-one states have no requirement that for-profit or non-profit management corporations open their books, yeah. even to the administrators and board of the charter school it is running. Uh, what? Like, so many of those bullet points were just, yeah, mind-boggling. What? What? Yeah, you don't have to disclose anything? How about the the repeated fraud, right, that has been found in charter school systems and that they can, because of issues with fraud, can then wind up having to be closed down without really much, if any, notice? Right. Is right. that the risk that we would be willing to take? And this happens to families. They'll enroll their children in charter schools. The charter schools will close for whatever reason, and they're left scrambling trying to get their child into a different school, rearranging their schedules so that they can do drop-off or f- figure out the bus schedule. This has serious implications on families who decided this is a school for my kid and then the kid and then the school's like, never mind, we're gone. We, you can't have that for children. You have to have dependable uh, institutions for them because the kids do, kids thrive on a, like schedules and structure and dependability. So the well, fact we've that talked that's about this. common is crazy. Yeah. We've talked about how schools are the, the safety nets, right, for communities. And so it's really – it is really frightening to think that if we destroy that safety net, what happens, right? Imagine let's just, you know, put it out there. If there was a rural rural community who they have charter schools available to them and, and that's it, right? The local ISD can no longer function because they're not getting those public dollars anymore. So let's just imagine, right, that this small community, all the kids are in charter schools at some point. Let's say there's some sort of fraud that happens within that system. Those schools close. There's no safety net then. Right. 
Yeah, there's, you, you there's can't no alternative. Turn around and get the school back and running in a couple of days. Like, but that. you better believe that community would feel betrayed. Oh, and then so would betrayed. be like, where did our schools go? That's why what we're talking about is so important is getting this information out into the light where people understand the implications of the choices that they're making and really understand if you abandon this, right? If we destroy this thing, here are all the potential consequences and are we willing to take those risks? Right. Exactly. Yeah. Are, do we want to move? Yeah, this is what we will be left with. Do you like this? Do you want this? And the truth of the matter, you know, Patty talked to us about this in our charter school episode about how a lot of these charter schools don't outperform local ISDs academically. They, a lot of times, don't have nurses. They don't provide free meals. They don't have transportation. And why is that the case? Well, I would imagine because those are things, those are expensive things. And if you can chip away at that, chip away at this, and get by with it, that's probably what you would do if your motivation is profit. And when you privatize, it is profit. But if we leave it to where it is now, which is local ISDs, it's a public good, and their whole um, bottom line is a very different bottom line from that of privatized schools. Yes. So we got to be careful. Really, really careful. I also was making a connection to, I thought, oh my God, libraries. I just I just listened to the Patty Everett episode and she it kept coming up, right? That many charter schools m- most from what it sounds like don't have libraries. And then I was like making that connection to where there's such an attack right now on libraries and banning <laughs> books. And I'm like, "Oh, that's really fascinating that that libraries have become such a battleground." And guess who doesn't even have libraries? So there's not even a need to have that battle. Interesting mm-hmm. that there is potentially this thing that's already set up to scoop in and be the solution um, to the, well, think the about, library problem. Think about libraries as our public good. They do so much more than just provide books for you to check out and return. They offer uh, a place. Yeah, story time. Computers. They help. They offer many classes. So folks are trying to become a citizen. They can go and they can understand the citizenship uh, citizenship, citizenship test. <laughs> they help people find jobs. Um, Printing services. Like if you don't have access to a printer, guess what? You can go to the library. You can print. They're incredible. They're one of the few places you can go where – I think I actually heard a librarian say this, where you don't have to buy something or believe in something to just be in that space. And it's a such a wonderful thing that we have libraries. And anytime a city wants to throw money at it, I'm like, please do. Like, I would oh love gosh. for my money to go over there. Um, because they, again, they're, they're more than just what we think they are. They are a, a safety net for a lot of people. And... Um, we have to we have to see that collectively. Otherwise, if we don't maybe use it that often, we'll be like, but do we really need it? Yes, we do. And yes, we really need public education. And it benefits us all. It's the a rising tide lifts all boats. It sure does. Let's keep that in mind. It really, really does. And maybe as we kind of conclude, we could talk about 
one other thing that came up in our offline discussion, which was partisanship and nonpartisanship and how um, we've reached a time where everything feels as if it, it can become partisan. And I've had to remind myself repeatedly that there are some values that are nonpartisan, right? That they're democratic with the lowercase d. And I like to think that that's what we are about here is focusing on the mechanisms of democracy and um, shining a light in places where a light needs to be shown. And, and that our emphasis is really on democracy and democratic institutions and recognizing when they are being assaulted and letting us and our audience have conversations and wrestle with those issues. So, yeah, absolutely. And almost to circle back to the beginning of the conversation, it is about seeing that invisible machinery, which might benefit certain people and not benefit others and recognizing it and being okay in that struggle and discomfort. Because again, like you were saying, a lot of parents are resistant to being honest about race or class or whatever it is, but we have to be okay sitting in that discomfort a little bit from time to time. Because what is school really about? It's about learning. Is learning easy? It's not. It's uncomfortable. Growth is uncomfortable. But for us to ever become better people, better nation, better communities, we have to go through that difficult process. But we'll come out better on the other end. And we can do it if we're willing to um, hold hands and say it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. Agreed. All right. Well, hopefully this is a, a helpful episode to sort of put a bow on our conversation with Laura Subrin Yeager. We're going to re- we're going to include the links to the articles that we referenced and let us know what you think. And we'll Please talk to you all soon. Please let us know. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Bye, everybody. Thank you, everybody, for joining me, Nicole Abshire, and my co-host, Claire Campos O'Neill, on Go Behind the Ballot. Hopefully, we've demystified some little portion of Texas politics, and we hope that you'll do more with us. Check out our website at www.gobehindtheballot.com, where you'll find links to all of our social media, and you will find our community. Let's join together and do more. We hope you'll let us know what is working, and we hope you'll join us next week. Thanks, everybody, and have a good one.